everybody's doing all right as you're uh, watching this video today we're going to be in first timothy chapter two and uh, if you haven't been uh, following along we've actually done an introduction video in the chapter before this chapter one as we're going through uh, this book chapter by chapter verse by verse so if you'd like some more background information uh, concerning first timothy i'd really encourage and challenge you to go check out those videos and uh, learn a little more as we went really in depth on those things. But today we're going to have a shorter than normal uh, passage, but we're going to jump into this section of scripture and talk a little bit about uh, Paul's teaching concerning prayer and really um, favoritism. And also he's going to give us some specific instructions, really gender specific instructions for men and women that seem reflective of some things that were going on in the the church of Timothy uh, that he was pastoring at in Ephesus. And so um, Paul's going to encourage Timothy to encourage the church here. So without further ado, um, second uh, chapter of 1 Timothy says, First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I think that um, something really interesting here I wanted to make mention of and point out is, if you look with me on the screen, on that first verse, he, he's encouraging a couple different types of prayer. And this usually isn't a, a common topic that maybe we discuss in church life. But nevertheless, it's in the scriptures, and so I think it's really important. So if you'll look with me, he's, he encourages, uh, urges petitions. Uh, we know that best. That's, that's asking requests of God. Uh, human nature, I think that is so common for us to know that kind of praying. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Intercessions is interesting. I think we best see this if you're familiar with the Old Testament. There's a scene in which Moses is praying on behalf of the Israelites that God won't uh, crush them all, kill them all, start over a new lineage with Moses and fulfill the promise to Abraham uh, through him. Uh, so that's kind of extreme example. But intercession is what happens when one person uh, who is walking with God usually um, comes alongside in between uh, those who are far from God and God himself. And so to go back to the Moses example, uh, we know the Bible tells us that Moses was one of the most humble men on the face of the earth. And he uh, was in friendship with God in a unique way that uh, was specific to Moses in salvation history. And so there, there was this relationship, and, and Moses, instead of using it for his own gain, um, chose to use this, this influence and relationship to then uh, intercede or pray on behalf of others. Um, and so that's why he's such a cool character um, with his flaws too, but, but such a great character. So Paul encourages uh, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, uh, being thankful in prayer. 
to be made for everyone. He says for kings and for all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness, uh, excuse me, and dignity. And I think this verse is really interesting because what we see here that Paul's trying to encourage is that uh, there is no favoritism with God and there is no bias with God for those who are kings and in authority. Um, Paul's asking that they be prayed for. So as they were wrestling with some of the worst, um, maybe Roman Empire uh, heads during this time, uh, Paul is still encouraging them to pray for their leaders and to seek to leave a, uh, live a, a tranquil, a quiet life. So pretty radical instruction. And, and his reasoning behind this in verse 3, he says, This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's desire for the church, um, for Timothy to pass along, is that if at all possible, and, and at times it's not possible, but if at all possible, uh, in every situation that it is possible, uh, Christians are to be seeking to live peaceably with their neighbors and with each other. And through this, they, they gain a, a great reputation amongst outsiders, and they, they gain a great reputation with the government, with the state, and they're able to then um, open up a door for, for salvation opportunity. They're able to uh, open up a door for um, prayers to be sent on their behalf that may open doors for gospel conversations and, and for, if anything, at the very least, uh, deep respect from those who are outside of the faith. And so... Like he says in three, this is good. It pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Here we see this verse is often quoted, that universal desire of the Father heart of God, that, that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to him to have everlasting life. We see this clear call of salvation, and we know God's desire is that uh, whosoever would come would come. And uh, God wants everyone to be saved as is uh, repeated here, to come to the knowledge of truth, uh, to put away the, the lies of the world, the things that, that uh, separate us from God, and to come to that truth. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. So, like I was mentioning with Moses with intercessory prayer, which we should be engaging in as, as Christians. Uh, Jesus is the one true mediator, uh, the one true intercessor, the one who stands in between God and man. And he is really the only bridge. And so as Paul is just mentioning, wants everyone to come to be saved, he's got to reiterate, there's only one person through whom this can happen. Uh, for there's one God. Uh, you cannot pray to a non-existent or different God for the one God that exists to be accepted into heaven. That's, that's not how it works. Uh, for there's one God, there's one mediator. There's only one way through which we can be saved. There's only one mediator between us and God. So if we want to be right with God, there's only one person to go through to do that. And his name's Jesus. Between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. 
If you know of Jesus, he is uh, the God-man who came 2,000 years ago as the time of this video being posted. And he lived the sinless life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he paid the price for the sin that we've committed so that on his behalf, we might put our faith and trust in him. And as he was crucified and killed on our behalf, that sin, when we put our faith and trust in him and decide to walk and follow after him, that that sin is placed on his back and is crucified with him and buried with him. And just as he was resurrected, we can then begin to partake of the great beauty and um, the great beauty and great gift that is given to us in his resurrection. And so uh, Paul says, for this, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a herald's like a preacher, a, a teacher, someone who's speaking and going out telling everybody as he did uh, an apostle. Um, I'm telling the, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We know from church history and from the Bible that Paul was appointed as an apostle, specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. And so well, Paul was trained in Judaism. He was trained uh, at the feet of uh, Gamaliel, if I said that right, uh, according to the Bible. He was a Pharisee. Uh, anything there was to know about Judaism, he knew. Anything there was to follow about Judaism, he did. Um, and God confronted him on the road to uh, Damascus, and uh, the Lord Jesus opened his eyes to the truth. And from that time, he was then an apostle, and he was always traveling. If you watch the introduction to the pastoral epistles, you would see a little glimpse of what his life was like before he was beheaded. But he was always traveling. He's always going to a new place. He's always looking for and finding new Gentiles to tell them about uh, the risen Savior. And so Paul faithfully lived this out in his life. He then goes on from encouraging prayer from everyone for everyone in all places. Uh, he goes on to <coughs> continue this conversation specific to the men. And when we look at these verses, it, it seems to speak to some realities that were going on in the church and things we can learn from and try to avoid in our own churches and lives. But it does seem to speak to some realities that were going on and, and things he's trying to warn the church of uh, and to ask them to step away from um, at this time. So in verse 8, he says, Therefore, right, because of all these truths we just talked about, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Okay, so the first instruction in verse 8 um, is this call for men to pray. I want you to notice this in every place, right? So before the coming of Christ, the sacrificial system, the worship of God, it was limited to the temple as God had originally designed it. And after the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the temple veil is torn. The separation from the Holy of Holies and the common ground of life is now opened up. And now people are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit in a unique way uh, comes to indwell believers according to my understanding and what I've experienced personally. And so from this, th there is no specific temple or church that we go to, but rather we are the temple and at all times we are the temple. And so we are to be mindful of that. 
So I want the men in every place to pray. So praying everywhere, at home, at work, uh, before bed, uh, before a meal, um, in your prayer closet, in your church services, as you go to the store, as you're having conversation with a friend. All these are great opportunities to pray at, in every place. Um, he says here, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So we know, as I just mentioned, that probably he's saying this is because um, they were praying with unholy hands and with anger and with argument. And so Paul is encouraging them to not only, uh, and it's a phrase, uh, lifting up holy hands, uh, that, that's a common action in prayer. We might lift our hands. And what Paul is, is encouraging is not to wash our hands before we pray. He, he's talking about living a pure life, coming to, before God. And as we offer our prayers, we're not just offering um, a, a messy life in a hypocritical, pure prayer. But instead, we're offering pure prayers from pure hearts with clean hands, uh, clean living. And uh, not, not to, to say that we clean ourselves up and then we come to Christ and, and try to present ourselves right before Him. But rather, if there's sin in our life, we, we deal with that and we go before the Lord with that, asking for forgiveness and begin to focus and get those things right. And from the right heart, we then offer up our, our prayers uh, without anger, without argument, loving our neighbor as ourself. I also wanted to pull out a verse uh, in the Psalms that uh, this scripture actually reminds me of, I think is helpful instruction. This is in uh, Psalm 24, particularly verse 3 through 5. And if you're looking on the screen with me, David says, uh, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? I imagine someone transcending as, as they pray to be before the Lord. Uh, the one who has clean hands, we see the same truth implemented, and a pure heart, who is not uh, appealed to what is false, and who is not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Right? The same idea of the mountain of the Lord or approaching the Lord in prayer in the New Testament, who can stand in his holy place, who can stand before the Lord. Who can pray that the Lord will heal, uh, excuse me, hear, um, who, who can be heard by God? I think verse 4 speaks to that. Um, it's, it's not only in what we ask, but how we approach Him when we ask and, and, and the kind of um, person we are, the kind of character we have. And if we don't have uh, asking for forgiveness for that and repenting of that before the Lord, I think it's so vital. So I just wanted to show you that little passage in Psalms. This sentiment in verse 8 of chapter 2 is something that is called to for, for Christians and believers at, at all times throughout the scriptures. Uh, this isn't unique to this text. Verse 9, he gives a, a gender-specific command to the women as he just dealt with the men. So he says, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Okay? Um, and so, 
This verse, I want to speak on this for just a moment. This one's really interesting because what I see here and what I saw in my studies is that for women, this is modesty here is predominantly speaking to modesty of uh, not expensive apparel. As we see here in the text, gold, pearls, elaborate hairstyles. The main focus, what he's getting on here is that it is your money being spent women predominantly to beautify the outside. Um, are you concerned with what the world is concerned with, which is looking good on the outside and neglecting that of the inside? Um, when we know that God, uh, even people who aren't Christians, uh, a lot of them know that what God looks at is the inside and he is not as concerned with what's on the outside. Uh, this is such a universal truth uh, for God and for humankind and the scriptures. So he gives some specifics, uh, modest clothing, uh, decency, and good sense, right? Wants women to look decent. He wants women to be dressed with good sense, be smart, cover up, right? Not with elaborate hairstyles. It's, it's not a fashion show, right? Your day-to-day -day life or your worship at the church, it's not a fashion show, or at least it shouldn't be. With gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, um, but with good works. So what I, what I think is going on here, and, and I want to mention this, I, I don't think Paul's giving a prohibition against any kind of jewelry or any kind of gold or any kind of pearls. I think we need to be mindful of that and we shouldn't be um, super uh, rich and over the top in the sense that uh, we are spending all our money on, on material goods. We're spending all our money on jewelry and decoration when there's things that need money and are more important to the heart of God than us looking good on the outside by far. Um, not only um, I think we need to notice that, but the main concern here, uh, along with not getting too expensive with our, our decoration women or, or not getting too uh, ornery or proud or um, arrogant through our decorating and, and maybe um, uh, doing something that would bring upon ourselves favoritism to look uh, fancier than we are, nicer than we are, cooler than we are. Um, more important than others. Instead of that, he wants us to focus on, as he says in verse 10, he says, but with good works. He says, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. I love this little nugget here. Basically, if you want to profess to worship God, you need to be decorated with the right kind of things. And the things you need to be decorated with aren't fancy jewels and uh, and clothing and apparel, not, not, that's not how we decorate before God. How we decorate is good works, good deeds, right? A, a life sold out to Christ, a, a life focused on the right things of discipleship and, and uh, growing in holiness. Um, all these things, these are what beautify a woman, not only before God, but also before a Christian uh, man or a Christian husband. And this is not to say that uh, women don't need to take care of themselves physically. Of course not. This is not to say that women aren't to uh, dress up and look pretty and do all the things that they want to do or desire to do there. Of course not. But that's not to be the focus. And if our focus or energy or time is more focused on that outside than these other things that the Lord would have us with, 
or really walking in sin. And so Paul calls the women to really pay attention to this. And uh, he goes on to uh, talk in these next verses. Um, I'll just read them and we'll talk about them. Uh, these are a very um, debated and contentious verses that uh, I believe they're just clear and they mean what they say. So a woman is to learn quietly uh, with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I think he's talking about one and the same thing here. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. And so, what Paul is advocating here, we see with Jesus, uh, there's a story of him with uh, two women, uh, one named Mary and one named Martha. And one of them is in the kitchen uh, doing some housework. And the other is doing something with this phrase called sitting at his feet. And not only is she learning and soaking in all that he's trying to teach her, but that's that phrase is specific to uh, women. We see this used of Paul that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, if I said that right, uh, but a Pharisee rabbi teacher of him. Uh, and so we see with Mary and Martha that, that Mary takes this pose before Jesus to learn from him as a rabbi. Okay, so Paul is saying a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. So in our 2020 eyes, uh, in the year 2020, we see, uh, oh my gosh, a woman is called to submit to a man. And you're missing the whole point of the text. What's going on is, is Paul is bringing women in to learn theology, to learn the Bible. Um, back in the day, women were not taught the Torah customarily. It was a very, 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 very rare thing if a woman had deep understanding and knowledge of the scriptures uh, because they were focused on the men. And so just as Jesus did, Paul as well is encouraging this tradition to continue and for women to grow in their understanding. So notice what he's doing here. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. And he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. And, and what he's, he's speaking towards here is the office of pastor. We see in other scriptures in Corinthians where women are um, called to and allowed to prophesy, to pray publicly. Uh, we also, of course, uh, take into note singing of women and all these things uh, Paul, I'm sure, would welcome. But what he's speaking to here is that of, of teaching, uh, of having authority over a man. And the one place where we would see authority and the one place uh, where we would see this uh, headship within the church body is that of a pastor. We see clearly uh, here, as we'll jump into deeply in the next chapter, uh, Paul is reserving the pastoral office uh, for men. And he's, he's going to tell us why. Uh, you'll see in chapter 3, verse 5 is very telling of this. But... Um, the reasons he gives for this, he says in, in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, this is very interesting that he goes back here. This is before the fall, okay? So this is before sin has entered the world. 
This is before anything has been twisted or made out of order or out of place in God's economy and kingdom. And so for him to reference this, what what he's essentially saying is that there are things that happened in God's created order for a purpose, and they are to teach us and show us something. And so one of the reasons uh, many uh, of those, which we'll get into in another video, who would see marriage differently than I would, who would see male and female relationships differently than I would, who would see um, the office of pastors being open to women, uh, all these things. People who see that, uh, they, they would point to the culture of their time and, and what they were going through and experiencing. And there are some notable things to point out in the culture. Uh, but with that being said, Paul's Paul's one point issue that he brings up and he brings up more than once. We'll look at this in the other video. Um, what he brings up is the created order, this universal truth, this universal manhood and womanhood before the fall. And so it doesn't really leave a lot of room for a, a weird culture in Ephesus to retranslate what he's saying here and to chop out 13 and uh, 14. And so I think that's why I hold that position clearly. I think when he references Adam and Eve uh, twice here, he's speaking to universal things. And uh, we'll, we'll delve into that in a, another video. But his reasoning here for Adam was formed first, then Eve. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that clearly Adam was uh, created before Eve and was given unique roles and tasks and had authority and responsibility uh, that superseded Eve's. And upon bringing Eve to Adam as his helper, one of equal worth and dignity, um, Adam was still held ultimately responsible uh, for the sins that took place in a greater uh, degree than Eve was. Also, we see, uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So I don't think um, what's going on here is that he's saying women can't think rationally or can't think um, certain thoughts, but the way in which sin happened in, in the garden was unique. So uh, for women, there was a, a true sense in which Eve was deceived and she sinned. She was fooled. And there's also a, a truth that's here that Paul's pointing us to that Adam was not fooled. He was not deceived. It's as plain as day right here in the text. And what we're seeing is that Eve's sin was believing the serpent and, and choosing to usurp her husband's authority. She went first without him. So they switched roles. Adam was supposed to be the leader, uh, the head of the home and the family and in charge. And Eve was supposed to come right alongside him and help him. And what happens in the sin scene in the garden is that the serpent comes to the woman. She then takes the position of authority. She then takes the fruit. She then eats it and gives it to Adam, who Adam as well is sinning. And, and he is not being a leader, but he's now following and submitting to Eve. And that's part of the sin that, that causes a lot of the, the fall of mankind. And so... He says, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and transgressed. And we see that Adam's sin maybe is a lot more intentional. It's a lot more pointed. It's a lot more guilt bearing because he wasn't deceived yet. He still sinned or maybe there, there's so many ways you could run with this and theories you could have. But we do know clearly as, as is taught, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and transgressed. 
And he says, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. This is well, this is a challenging text. Uh, these few verses are, this last verse is challenging. Um, the way in which I see it is I'm going back to the garden because Paul's going back to the garden. And we see in Genesis uh, 2 and 3 that a woman is called to a unique role which is that of being a mother, mother of all the living, Eve is. And so with this unique role, we see in the curses after sin that this role is punished. This role is made more challenging, just as the man's role is made um, more challenging and is punished. I think what he's saying is that she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, uh, love, and holiness. In other words, um, the woman's place in, in a very prominent way uh, for, for wives and for mothers is that in the home. It's that of, of helping to raise the next generation in a very powerful way that uh, only mothers can do and fathers can't do as well in certain aspects. Uh, there is a trade-off for both men and women, and we'll get into that in, in this next video. But uh, he says if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and good sense, there's to be this posture of women of not only modesty that Paul's calling them to, but also of fruitfulness, bearing fruit with your own kids and raising them up as mature uh, Christ followers. And so that's what he's speaking to here. If uh, this section seemed kind of muddy and kind of uh, confusing, we're really going to dive deep into this and unpack all of this. And I'm going to be doing a video on some of these different views and we're going to look at a, a bunch of different bible texts so that we can get a really clear understanding of this section of scripture which is also going to be helpful for this next chapter three in first timothy and and for the rest of the the new testament understanding how god sees these things and what the bible unanimously and consistently teaches uh, concerning men and women and church life uh, so it, i hope this video is helpful I hope uh, we really unpack some of these verses. Uh, these are challenging verses, and uh, I try not to waste too much time. There's a lot of ways that these verses can be interpreted. And so if you have any questions or maybe you'd see it differently, I'd love to hear from you uh, in the comments down below. Um, if this is helpful for you, this kind of content, uh, I'd love to see more of you. And uh, the channel is going to be filled with more of these types of videos. So nevertheless, uh, thank you for tuning in with us and uh, we will catch up with you later.